I'll try it. I'm on the other mic though, boys, so I don't get too excited yet. <laughs> we did have um, three go through last night, the bat- uh, water of baptism. We would love to come forward now to present them with, with a certificate. Happy? Testing one, two, three. Good? I don't know. So I'd like uh, Amber. She's gone out, is she? Righto. She'll be back in a second. Dan and Sam, if you boys want to come out. And um, Amber, she'll be here very shortly. She's just taking Chloe out to the kids' church, I think. So, Mandy, you just want to pop out and let Amber know we're wanting her in case she gets delayed out there. Actually, just come and stand in front there, boys. We want to see your handsome appearance. <laughs> just look at them. Just look at them, guys. Just look at them. What a couple of men. So we've got uh, some certificates here we'd like to hand out to you just in recognition of the incredible courage you showed last night and uh, a faithful step in confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And we're just going to wait for Amber to race back in there as well and she's going to get really embarrassed when she gets in here. Here she comes. Come on down, Amber. Come on down. Should have given you some forewarning, shouldn't I? You can come and stand between these two guys here and be the... Not the rose among the thorns, but I mean, you know, just um, just to compliment the photo. So we just want to give some certificates last night for these guys who went through the waters of baptism as they uh, made a confession of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And uh, we were so encouraged and so thankful for it. So there we go. Dan, that's for you, mate. Amber, that's for you. Sam, that's for you. Thank you. Well done, guys. You can grab a seat. Okay, we are um, working our way through the book of John, fantastic book, uh, a gospel, the gospel account of Jesus Christ uh, as written by John. It was written about 60 years after the resurrection of Christ approximately. <coughs> and uh, he's taking a different perspective and writing with a, uh, a clear um, design. He wants us to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the, that's the whole purpose of John's gospel. He's pointing us and directing us towards believing in Jesus Christ. And today we're going to move into uh, chapter 3. But before we get there, have you ever noticed uh, those taglines or one-sentence blurbs or even a slogan that summarise a business? You know, Yui, we get you. Or Apple, think different. Or Nike, just do it. Yeah, you've picked it up already, haven't you? It's, It's very effective advertising. Or this one, Lay's Chips. I bet you just can't eat one. That's another one. It's like a tagline, it's like a slogan that sort of summarises. Well, there's a verse in the Bible, not so much is it a tagline or a slogan, but it really does give a one, a good one-verse description of the message of the Bible, and it really does summarise the Gospel in a nutshell. And we want to look at that uh, verse today as John uh, points us towards the core message of the Bible. As we see that familiar verse, which you're all thinking, I know what that's going to be, it's going to be John 3.16, and you're right. But before we get there, let's go and read from verses 1 to 21. <coughs> Can I have a, grab a bit of water there, please, bro? Chels? Uh, <coughs> well, that doesn't sound good either, did it? <coughs> Verses 1 to 21. Now, there was a man 
of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Father, thank you today that we can uh, gather together here at Kyla Park Community Centre. Thank you, Lord, for your word that stands eternal. We sung about that before. It is an eternal word. They are powerful declarations that we make, Lord. We think and meditate upon this truth. God, it certainly will do something in our hearts as your spirit brings it alive. And we pray today that, Holy Spirit, you would bring uh, this passage from John uh, chapter 3 alive in our hearts. May it change us radically. May it transform us. May it uh, bring us closer and closer to the image of Christ, I pray. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. In John's Gospel, he, uh, he moves very quickly. And from last week, he went from, uh, we spoke about dead religion and dead worship. And uh, how that was uh, now, how that was uh, sort of you know, somewhat binding up the Jews of uh, that particular day. And now John was to move to um, the heart of the Gospel message. And uh, John 3.16, as we just read in that passage there before, is probably one of the most memorised scriptures all over the world. If you think back to your early days, if you went to Sunday school as a young person, as, uh, that would probably be the first verse you would ask to memorise. And uh, let me tell you, it's a great verse to memorise. It's a great verse to think on. It's one of those precious diamonds of the scriptures that we can read and think about and uh, hold in our memories. The last couple of verses, though, in chapter chapter 2 here, really do help us uh, to see where John is going in this gospel. It dovetails in well with how how he links it then to uh, chapter 3. The last couple of, uh, what we saw last week is many people were beginning to get attracted to Jesus, 
but they were getting attracted for all the wrong reasons. They were getting attracted for the spectacular or the supernatural. They just wanted to see signs. They weren't really coming to Jesus for who he was. He was doing all sorts of miracles all around Palestine and there was plenty of people actually getting ooing and ahhing over that. But Jesus wasn't fooled by any of them for these ones who were coming to him uh, only attracted by the signs and miracles and not by the truth of what he was saying. And in John 2, 24-25, he says this, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knows what's in the heart of every single person. He knows what drives us. He knows our inner thoughts. He knows our motivations. There's nothing hidden from him. And he knew that with the core of man, the heart of man, this is the issue that uh, needs to be addressed. It's our very central core that is what is fundamentally wrong within us. Jesus was coming to address the heart. So this is where John now goes as he thinks about and talks about the situation where a Pharisee called Nicodemus comes to Jesus during the night. Perhaps he's intrigued by Jesus' miracles. Perhaps he's actually attracted by because he's hearing these things about the water being turned into wine and all manner of things that Jesus was doing at this time. And he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and he asks this question, uh, perhaps. Sorry, and Jesus gives this totally confusing answer to Nicodemus as he comes about asking about the kingdom of God. And he says to Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And this is exactly where John wants to go today as he looks at this idea of being born again. We want to use uh, John 3.16 and we want to reflect it back through this chapter and into the life of Nicodemus here as we trace out this, um, this uh, central verse or this summarising verse which summarises the message of the Bible. And we'll do it here with a problem, a cure and a process as we think about this verse and the way it reflects here into the core problem of the heart of man. The problem, there's a lot of clarity here in this chapter. John uses some very uh, black and white terms to describe things. He uses some very clear language and it's not too difficult to understand what he's saying here when he talks about this. And particularly in John 3.16, he gives us a picture of humanity in its natural state and it's not comforting. It's not comforting in its natural state. Jesus tells us in this verse, verse 16, that we are perishing. We are perishing For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. There's a sense there that we are perishing as human beings. Why are we perishing? Why would Jesus say that? The corruption of sin has utterly separated us from God. The corruption of sin has so worked its way into our hearts and totally distorted our hearts. Instead of loving God as our good and gracious creator, we really do for all intents and purposes live life totally ignoring him. In our natural state, in this perishing state, we don't appreciate every breath we have. Or we don't appreciate every second we're alive in life. We don't look at this in a sense of being thankful towards God for the privilege of being able to breathe and being able to be alive. In this natural state, we don't conform completely to the moral compass that God has given us with our conscience where we know right from wrong. And we don't desire to live in the truth of God's ways in our day-to-day lives, in this natural state. We are perishing. We readily do life in our own terms. Really, it's all about me at the centre of my universe, and uh, God, you're a very far distant second, or you don't even rate at all as far as the radar is concerned in my life. This sin has cut us off from God, and in the spiritual sense, we are dead before him. We sung that line in that song as well. I was dead, dead in my sin. 
And Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, tells us that very thing. Paul's writing to the Ephesians and he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Dead in our sins. Very much physically alive in this natural state, in this perishing state. But in a spiritual sense, there's nothing alive about us at all towards God. Dead, dead, dead. Absolutely unresponsive to God in this natural state. Perishing. And it says there, as Jesus has told us, we are to perish eternally in this natural state. That is to die spiritually and eternally. That's really hard for us to grasp or comprehend today. To think I'm perishing or I'm dead spiritually. Because as we look around us here and we look around this community, we think we live in such a blessed place like Australia. It's a wonderful place. The sun is shining outside. The, the, the community's put on that beach, beach volleyball event down there. It just seems like a really great thing. And it is a really great thing. Nothing wrong with that at all. And for the large part, the community seems to get on very well. You know, most people, you can go down the street and you're not going to get shot or mugged or something like that. Some people actually smile as you walk down the street and you can do business and smile at the shopkeeper and exchange and it's all good. It seems to be a place that's peace, peaceful and friendly. It's hard for us to comprehend that despite all of that, Jesus says here that you will perish, that we will perish. See, that is our problem. That is our problem. The natural man who is dead spiritually doesn't want anything to do with God in a sense. It's the, it's the corruption of sin and what it has done to our hearts. The natural person is quite happy doing their own evil deeds and doesn't want to submit to God. Jesus actually said that right here. Verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus comes into the world, shines the light of truth, speaks it out and his life reflects it out. And humanity in their natural state doesn't want the evil deeds exposed. It's uncomfortable. Jesus probably was a very uncomfortable person to be around sometimes. Just his life and his purity and his holiness would expose corruption, would expose sinful, evil behaviour. And people don't want to be convicted by that truth. They don't want to be made feel uncomfortable here by the actual problem that is in their lives. John uses the word he condemned a number of times through that passage as we just read that. As I said, he uses pretty clear language and here it is, condemned. In our natural state, that's exactly what it is. Exactly as John has said it. We refuse to love God first and foremost and submit to him. So we are condemned to face God's wrath. Jesus said we will perish. That is our problem. And it's a serious problem. It's a major problem here. Condemned. The cure. The cure is in this verse just as much as the problem is in this verse. In the same verse here in John 3.16, Jesus reveals the heart of God the Father towards us. Humanity, as I just said, without exception, stands before a holy God condemned to face his justice. Utterly condemned. And there's nothing in us at all that forces God to do anything to do anything about that. There's nothing about us that, would, that we somehow, God owes us because of something we have done. God will be completely justified to do nothing about the situation at all and let us all just face his justice. There will be nothing wrong about God doing that whatsoever. 
But amazingly and incredibly, as Jesus reveals in this verse here, God doesn't do that. God doesn't leave us in that condemned state to perish, to die spiritually and eternally. In God's pure, free, sovereign love, God chooses to reach out and to save a sinful and rebellious humanity. God in his infinite love, in his indescribable love, God in his love that is beyond compare, that cannot be compared to any type of love in this world whatsoever, puts in place a rescue plan to rescue people who are condemned to face his justice and to save them. And Jesus is the cure for our problem, for this dire problem we find ourselves in. And what we find here about this cure is that it's truly an amazing aspect of God's love, an incredible aspect of God's love. God's love isn't passive in this action here that's taking place in John 3.16. The whole message of the Bible isn't a passive action of God. It's not something that just sort of is really no action involved in it at all. It's not like God sends us a little thank you card in the mail that says, look, I'm thinking of you. That's a passive action of love. It's a good thing to do and it's a great thing to do, but it's, it's a passive demonstration of love. Now, God does a very practical way of demonstrating his love. Verse 16, he says, For God so loved the world, he gave. He gave. He gives. He does something very practical in demonstrating this love. He gave his only son. There's a definite action taking place here that is demonstrating the love of God. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, For this is God's love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a real picture here of this active uh, demonstration of God's love. He takes his one and only son, and he's sending him into this world to ultimately lay down his life at about the age of 30, probably in the prime of his life, probably the same age as some of those people playing beach volleyball down there in the prime of their life and all their physical activities. Jesus is sent to this world, and he will come and lay down his life on a cross at about the age of 30. He will die a criminal's death on a Roman cross, even though he is totally and completely innocent, has done nothing wrong. Jesus, send, uh, God sends the Son there to come, and so his death will uh, make us complete, make us whole, pay the debt of sin so that we can be reconciled back to the Father and our condemnation state uh, can be erased. This is a massive demonstration. A massive demonstration of love. I, I try to think about this and I, and I pictured to myself, I have a son, a one and only son, a gorgeous son, a son that I love and a son that I would give my life for on a good day. No, no, any day, any day, any day. I would. I, I've got a, a beautiful son that I love. And, and I was just trying to think there, could I, could I bring myself in conjunction with my son to form a plan to send him to some far off distant land? to die for these people who actually aren't interested in him. And then when I send him off, he arrives there and they reject him and they don't want him, even though he's coming to save them. And I'm thinking, what would possess me to want to send my son to do that? It just began to give me a small picture here of the love of God and the love of Christ, the son, who had formed this plan together to come and to save and to reconcile. An amazing picture here. It's incredible love. We, we can't really put words into it to describe that. It's indescribable, as Louis Giglio would tell us. It's unimaginable. It's love of infinite value that possessed both God the Father and God the Son 
to come together with the Holy Spirit to form this plan of salvation, to form this rescue plan that would uh, incredibly um, take us from being in a helpless, hopeless situation in a condemned state due to face God's judgment. And now Jesus steps in and takes the rap for us. Jesus comes in, places himself upon that cross, bears our sins so that we can be saved and reconciled. It is love that cannot be described. It is infinite love. The problem is that our sin is causing us to perish and we are condemned to perish eternally. The cure is God has provided his son that through his life and death for us and his resurrection, we can be saved and set free. The process. What's the process? How does this look? How do I receive what God has done? How do I receive God's forgiveness here in this uh, idea that Jesus has saved me? Well, this is where Nicodemus comes into the picture. This is where he comes. I don't think it's a genuine inquirer at this stage. It doesn't really look like he stepped over the line of faith. But anyway, that's, not, um, that's just my thoughts there. He's come to Jesus in the middle of the night because he's probably seen and heard the miracles that Jesus has performed. And he's intrigued by who this Jesus is. So he comes to him in the middle of the night time and he says, Hey, Jesus, we certainly think God is with you. you know, nobody can do the things you're doing unless you are sent from God comes to that question. That's really all he asks. And Jesus gives him this really confusing answer. Really confusing. He says, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. You need to be born again, Nicodemus. Jesus is beginning here, beginning to reveal the process of the cure for our problem. And it's really important here as we think about why is John including this story of Jesus and Nicodemus here. As we said last week and the week before, it's for a very, very good reason. John, the apostle of Jesus Christ, wants us to place our complete and total trust in Christ alone, not in anything that we would do or try to do in his name as as saving us. John's pointing us towards Christ. And that's exactly why he's brought this uh, situation and circumstance here for us to see today. Let's think about Nicodemus for a second. As far as he's concerned, in Nicodemus' mind, when he comes to Jesus in the night time, he's already in the kingdom of God in Nicodemus' mind. He's in. He's in. He thinks he's in because he's a Jew. He's part of the chosen nation that God chose right back with Abraham to be where the seed would come through, that would come through and be the eventual saviour. Nicodemus thinks he's in. Not only does he think he's in in that sense of birthright, actually I'm a Pharisee. When it comes to being Jews, I am the cream of the crop. I'm the best part that rises to the top. This is who I am. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. God couldn't be any more pleased with me in the way I've lived before him. So Nicodemus is totally sure in his mind, I'm already in God's kingdom. He's thinking by birthright, at least I'm in. I've actually been born of this kingdom by being a Jew. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. No one enters God's kingdom by birthright. Just because we may have Christian parents doesn't mean, children of Christian parents, that you are saved and you are in God's kingdom by relying on a birthright situation, by by saying, hey, I'm born into a Christian family. That is a great start and a wonderful thing and we praise God for that. But that doesn't mean you are automatically and naturally in the kingdom. 
No, not at all. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born from above before you will see God's kingdom. This is the process of receiving the cure for the problem of our sin that has cut us off from God. Nicodemus tries to work this out in his mind. He says, hang on, okay, what's going on here? Are you saying that when I'm old, I've somehow got to go back into my mother's womb and be born again that way? I'm not sure whether he was being a bit stupid there or what he was trying, but he was just showing he wasn't really getting it. Jesus says, this is a spiritual birth, Nicodemus, not a physical birth. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's talking about here a spiritual birth. Nicodemus, your heart and your spirit needs to be totally renewed. You need to be born again, Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus then and people here today, we have to see this is the process of receiving the cure or entry into God's kingdom. God the Holy Spirit, in this initial act, God is the prime mover, the initial mover in being born again supernaturally and mysteriously moves upon us and totally renews our mind, our will and our affections. It is a work of God. We may have a resistant heart towards God or a heart that really isn't interested in God at all. But then God the Holy Spirit sovereignly moves upon us in irresistible grace and gives us the ability to believe and see Christ and follow him. The Holy Spirit draws us towards Jesus in some incredible way that we can't really see or comprehend. Once we were dead in our sins, as we sung in that song, spiritually dead to God, but now we're alive. The Spirit of God has moved upon us in this process of conversion or being born again and giving us eyes to see. Uh, John Newton wrote that song, Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. He's describing the born again process right through that song. And Jesus goes on to explain it here somewhat, not in the minute detail. He talks here about this work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration or new birth or being born again. It's not something we see in the physical. It's not something we see in the physical. Jesus actually likens it to wind. In verse 8 there he says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nobody can see the wind, can they? You can't see all those air molecules that have combined together. I'm hoping that's the right thing with wind. You can't see these air molecules combined together sort of rushing across the, the oval out there. You can't see anything. You can see the evidence. You can see the dust and the litter and the leaves and the trees bending, but you can't see the wind itself, but you can see its evidence taking place. And this is what Jesus is saying here. We can experience the new birth. And for all those who are believers, they do experience the new birth. And you might be asking me right now, what does this experience look like? How does it feel? Well, once the things of God were totally uninteresting to me in my natural perishing state, I barely gave God any thought except I've always in trouble that I might cry out help from God. But as soon as I might have got out of that fix, then I just moved on and forgot about God altogether. But now, as the Holy Spirit has come upon me and opened up my eyes and my heart to see who Jesus is, now the Holy Spirit has renewed my heart and I'm born again. The things of God have captured my attention. I'm interested in God. I love God with a newfound love, a profound love. 
I now desire to please God and look forward to being with him when I die. No one really looks forward to be dying, but the idea of now that I'm going to be united with Christ actually gives me a hope to look forward to death in a very strange way. I look forward to death because I will be united with Christ forever, living in peace, joy and righteousness. I have found a newfound peace and comfort in the middle of the most ridiculous of circumstances. In the middle of pain and suffering, God by his Holy Spirit, because of the new birth experience being born again, I can have a calmness or a peace in the middle of pain and tragedy and suffering. Sure, I feel still feel the pain and tragedy and suffering, but there's this unexplainable peace that surpasses all understanding that is with me in the middle of that. That's what you experience in the new birth, in being born again as the Holy Spirit comes upon us and uh, initiates that process as the prime mover in our conversion. This is the first part of the process here of receiving this cure. The first part of the process, the Spirit of God moves upon us and reveals Christ into our hearts and we are drawn to Christ to love and serve Him. The other part of the process here is we are called to believe (coughs) what God has done for us. It says there in verse 16, believes in him. What does this belief mean? Is it just some sort of mental recognition of the truth of the gospel and nothing else? Is that what the belief means here in verse 16? Humanity has a responsibility to act upon what God has done Uh, For us, and this is precisely what the word believe means here in verse 16 of John chapter 3. It really does have deeper implications than just a mental recognition. Yep, I I just, you know, I believe these facts about Jesus. It actually goes deeper than that. The word in verse 16, belief, actually carries with it an understanding of commitment. Committing myself to this one whom I believe in. Not only do I believe in the sense I accept everything about who he is and what he stands for, but I actually commit myself to him wholeheartedly now, entrusting him entirely without reserve of any part of my life. Perhaps we could picture it like this, this idea of commitment. I'm standing at a rope bridge across a very deep ravine. It is pitch black. It's the middle of the night. I can't see a thing. Totally cannot see any more than about two centimetres in front of my eyes. There's an angry lion behind me in, in the bush behind me and it is somewhere out there and it's after me. I need to cross this bridge to get across the other side so I can get away from this uh, lion that is after me. My friend's already crossed the bridge. My friend has already crossed the bridge. He's across the other side and he calls out to me from the darkness and he says, Todd, I've crossed the bridge. Believe me, it will hold you, but you need to cross it. Step out onto the bridge. My friend calls it out to me. Now, it's one thing for me just to believe my friend in saying, hey, yeah, just cross the bridge. You can do it. I can, I can believe in a, in a mental sense in my mind. But it's another thing now to commit myself to actually stepping out and then making that step towards him to walk across that bridge. I have to step out as it were in faith, believing in what he's told me and then committing myself to what he's told me and then step out across that bridge. It's just the same process here of receiving the cure that I must also do in committing myself to Jesus. I must believe who Jesus says he is and accept the entire truth of that, but I must commit myself, my entire self, 
by faith to step out and put my complete trust in him with my entire life. It is a commitment to Christ alone. And this is what salvation is. It's entirely a work of God's grace. We trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. We receive this gift of grace through believing and committing our lives to Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us. It's a total life commitment. And then we have this sure hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ. We have a problem. We're perishing. We're perishing. We have a cure. That is Jesus Christ alone and his finished work at the cross. And we have a process that's initiated by the Holy Spirit and received by our committed belief and trust in him. And then we are given this new heart to live for him. Three implications that I drew out of this today as I thought about where we are today in the the Greater Shepparton community. Firstly, as we think about that, we must stand back in sheer admiration and praise for God in his incredible mercy upon us when we in no way deserve it. We had this massive problem and God is not in any way uh, called upon by anything we have done to come and save us. But what does he do? God comes in and sends his son and saves us. God must receive all praise and honour. We must sit back there and just say, God, you are worthy of all praise. You are worthy of all honour. You are amazing that you would come and save me. Second, because the Holy Spirit is the principal agent in salvation and moves sovereignly to, to make even the hardest hearts to desire Jesus, we must pray. We must pray. We must pray that God's Spirit will move upon people and he will open up their eyes to see the wonder and the beauty of Christ. And this gives me great confidence when I think about it like that. Because what can I do in my own strength? All I can do is present an argument or present a thought to somebody But when I've got the supernatural power of God, I can ask for to help. God can take the hardest heart and make it soft. God can take the biggest rebel and turn them around. We can pray. And that's paramount for us here today as we reach out as Exchange Church into the community where we live in. We want to see people become followers of Jesus. We pray. We pray that God's spirit would move upon their hearts and open up their eyes to see the wonder and the beauty of Christ. Lastly, uh, this is the gospel message. This is the gospel message. There's a problem and there's a cure and there's a process. In some sense, it's not simple. It's not really complicated to present it like that. But on the surface, it really does seem like a strange message. You're going to tell me about some guy who was on the, on the earth 2,000 years ago and he, and he died on some Roman cross and I've got to put my trust in him? It just does sound like a strange message in this sort of modern day world we live in. We must never stray from that message. We must never stray from the pure, unadulterated gospel. Sure, there'll be many ways we try and bring the conversation up. There'll be many ways of actually going through what we might call apologetics or defence of Christianity or just conversations in life. But it'll ultimately boil down to the, the nutshell of the Bible will be that message that Jesus Christ died for sinners. We have this problem that we are perishing. There is only one cure, and that is Christ's death on the cross for our sins. And there's only one process, and that is God moving upon our hearts, opening us up to see, and then we commit ourselves in belief and we receive that gift. We must never stray from the message, regardless of how 
silly it may sound in our own minds or how silly it may sound when I'm actually sharing it with somebody. We just got to have total, complete confidence in that truth. That is what God works with. And the evidence here is many, many people have come to that same, heard that same message and say, I believe, I believe. Don't ever doubt the message of the gospel. Don't ever think we've got to try and change it some way to make it sound more palatable or more um, loving or something. Sure, we present it lovingly and truthfully, but we don't stray from the core message of the Bible. As ridiculous as it may sound, don't stray from it. Pray that God will use it to reveal into their hearts. Well, these people will come to understand the reality and the, and the impact of the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you today for the, the truth that you have uh, put into John 3.16 and you've demonstrated through the life of Nicodemus here and how Jesus spoke to him. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that we were perishing. We were dead in our sins. We were totally unresponsive to you in our natural state, very much physically alive, but spiritually dead. Gloriously, lovingly, loved beyond any comprehension that we even could try and enter into. You send your son into this world to save us and your spirit comes and begins to supernaturally and mysteriously reveal this truth into our hearts. We can't see the workings of your spirit, but we can experience those workings. And I pray today, for the Lord, for those who are sometimes thinking, am I saved, am I not saved? Is this real, is it not real? I pray today, Holy Spirit, you would uh, deepen the experience of Christ in their hearts by showing them that the love that they have for you, Lord, is a real evidence that the, uh, the conversion work has uh, taken place. A desire to, uh, to live a holy life is an evidence of a conversion place, a work that's taken place. Holy Spirit, today I pray, give us uh, fresh zeal, fresh confidence as we pray for the community we live in. We pray for family members. We pray for work colleagues. We pray for many, many people around about us. It's a stark reality, Lord. It's a stark reality. The people who are not believers are perishing. They are perishing. Jesus, you have told us there that they don't believe in you. They are condemned. I pray today that, Holy Spirit, you would just let that rest upon our hearts to see that this situation is dire. This situation out there is catastrophic. Yes, we live in a harmonious community. Yes, we live where people are friendly and kind to each other. But Lord, putting all that aside, they are perishing. We pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to go forward and share this message, unembarrassed, unashamed of it. And we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would do good things in opening up the eyes of the blind spiritually to see this truth. And they would too would come to Christ. Father, thank you for that today. And uh, Lord, we do ask and pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. If you could just come back and uh, lead us uh, in a song, and then we're just going to come back and have a, uh, a meeting, information update meeting uh, straight after that. Thank you. If you'd like to stand, we're going to close with uh, how majestic.